Good morning. Welcome. My name is Raina Wells. I'm Acting Director of Business Affairs and Research at OMDC. And um, I'm so glad you could all join us this morning for our 11th Digital Dialogue Breakfast Session. For those who don't know OMDC, we're Ontario Media Development Corporation. We're an agency of the Government of Ontario, and our mandate is to build Ontario's creative economy, specifically the book and magazine publishing, film and television, music and interactive digital media industries. We do this through a range of programs, grants, tax credits, services, and events like this one. At these breakfast sessions, we bring people together from across the different creative media industries to talk about topics that we think are of interest across the industries. It's our hope that through today's session, you'll make some new connections, meet some new people, and take away some new ideas. This morning's topic is, you've come a long way, baby, does gender matter? We've given research grants uh, to three separate projects exploring gender in the last two years, and we figured it would make for an interesting discussion topic. Two of our panelists today will be talking about research studies that are now underway or were completed recently. If you'd like to read those full reports, they'll be up on OMDC's website once they're released. About 10 years ago now, um, I was lucky enough to be the first person to officially hold the title of Manager of Research at OMDC. And that's when we started the Research Grants Program. Since then, we've funded nearly 100 research studies. The topics range from the very practical to the more theoretical. And you can find them all on our website, which is omdc.on.ca. Research is under the Collaboration tab on the website. We also have an online research library, a searchable database, where we've collected cultural industries research from around the world. And it's definitely worth a browse if you like research. If you can't find the research page or the online research library, send us a note at research at omdc.on.ca. We'll send you the links. Our panelists today are Samantha Slattery, Rachel Goldstein Couteau, and Emma Westicott. Thank you all for taking the time to be here and for sharing your ideas with us. Moderating the panel is Sue Carter. Sue Carter is the editor of Quill Inquire magazine. She's also arts and ideas editor for this magazine and national books columnist for Metro Canada. Sue's award-winning writing has appeared in the Globe and Mail, Toronto Life, Reader's Digest, and Canadian Art, among other publications. Please join me now in welcoming Sue Carter, Samantha Slattery, Rachel Goldstein Couteau, and Emma Westicott. Um, so, good morning. Um, first of all, I want to thank OMDC for inviting me to moderate this morning. Um, I'm going to start um, by introducing each of our panelists and just speak very, very quickly about some of the experiences that I've had in magazine and book publishing. And then each panelist will speak and then we'll open that up to a Q&A. So first I'd like to introduce uh, Samantha Slattery, who is Executive Director for Women in Music Professional Association of Canada, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to fostering gender equality in the Canadian music industry. And she's also founder of the promotion and consulting business Rep Republic Presents. So Samantha's music industry experience is focused primarily on concert promoting, working for 15 plus years producing music festivals throughout North America in the UK, many of which you've probably heard or maybe attended, Coachella, Virgin Music Fest, to name a few. And she also spent a number of years as a manager at Networks Management's UK office. She splits her time between Los Angeles and Toronto for Republic Presents, though she, where she's currently advising several major festivals. Um, and then second, we have Rachel Goldstein Couteau, who's the Director of Programming, Entertainment, and Specialty Television for Bell Media. In her position, she oversees day-to-day -day scheduling and is responsible for content across all entertainment specialty channels, including Comedy, Space, Bravo, E, Much, MTV, and M3. 
Rachel's worked in programming for 15 years, and she began her career answering viewer mail for CTV, and quickly moved up the ranks to become manager of programming in 2006, before being promoted to her current role, which now includes overseeing Bravo Fact. And then finally, we have Emma Westacott, who's assistant professor, game designer, and director of Game Play Lab at OCAD University. And Emma's worked in the game industry and development and research for more than 20 years. Uh, she achieved international recognition for working closely with Douglas Adams as producer for the best-selling CD-ROM adventure game, Starship Titanic. And since then, she has built up a worldwide reputation for developing original and popular game projects. And Emma has been invited to present her work at many prestigious venues, including BAFTA, the Tate, and the Banff Center. Um, between 2001 to 4, she directed the Zero Game Studio for the Interactive Institute in Sweden. And more recently, she's been the Games Research Fellow at NSAMD, UWN, I think I got that right, where she organized 2007's Women in Games Conference. So I'm really excited to be sharing the stage with these women this morning, and we've already found connections, I think, between all of the different disciplines, which I'm sure is going to, you will observe and we'll probably also talk about in a bit. Um, in publishing, there's been some advancements, I think, over the past for a couple of years. For instance, there are now women books editors at both the Toronto Star and the National Post, which I think is starting, I think also has some impact. Um, but there's some lingering disparities. Um, for the f past couple of years, there's been an organization called uh, Canadian Women in Literary Arts, or QUILA, which has been tracking the gender, the gender gap in book review coverage across Canada. And so in 2013, they counted more than, I think it was like 5,600 reviews and 31 publications, looking at both the gender of the reviewers and the authors. So in 2013, 56.9% of books reviewed were by male authors, and 51% of the books were reviewed by male critics. So it's not terrible, but what, if you look at the numbers, it's, there's some publications that are doing really, really well, and there's a lot of them that are just there are huge disparities still. Um, and in, in, even in some of the national um, publications, such as the Globe and Mail, um, in 2013, only 31.57% of books of, by women authors were reviewed. So I'm sure that those numbers, the, the new numbers will be coming out soon. And I, there's been a, great improvements every year, but it'll be interesting to see what happens there. But what I find interesting is not just the, the gaps in the disparities of the, um, the books that are being, um, or the reviews, but the types of books that are being published by women, which is something that I've been researching at Cool Inquire. And, and I started looking at through fall catalogs for publishers and realized that in certain categories of nonfiction, there's not a lot of, um, uh, like science and history, uh, politics. It's really still very difficult to find women writing in those topics. And so I started asking publishers about them, and several of them told me that they're having a really hard time finding women, finding those manuscripts to begin with, that they're actively pursuing them, they're talking to agents, but they're having challenges even finding those. And so these are some of the, the sorts of things that we're trying to look at right now, and I don't know if it's connected to uh, academia, but you know, these are the books that get nominated for you know, the big awards, receive the major grants, and the book deals. So. Um, that's sort of where I'm, I find the challenges are right now. But now we're going to pass it down and we're going to hear from Samantha about Women in Music Canada's report on women working in the music industry in Ontario. All right, good morning everybody. Thank you for the introduction. I'll use my all right, and thank you OMDC for inviting women in music to participate in this conversation. So, and thank you all for coming. All right, let's see if I can get this clicker to work. Um, so you've come a long way, baby. And then my first answer is, have we? Um, so I'll talk a little bit about our organization then I'm gonna get into our, our research, which actually is uh, released this week. So if anyone's interested, we can share that with everyone. It'll be on the OMDC website. Um, so, as Sue mentioned uh, a little bit about us, um, you know, our main mandate is to really just try to encourage equity in our industry, which is not really the case at the moment, and our research supports that. Um, so, I think, first and foremost, it's important to establish why we did the survey, because people do them for a whole number of reasons. 
Women in Music is a relatively new organization, and as such, we felt it was crucial to have verifiable uh, data and facts that would provide us with the current landscape of the industry. So by having this information, we're better able and prepared to serve both our members and the community. Uh, the first couple of slides touch on what we observed going into this exercise, so you can get a sense of them why we went forward with the questioning that we did. Um, so there's a considerable number of concerns relating to gender balance in the Canadian music industry. So anecdotally, myself and our board members and just our peers observed, there's a lot less women working in our industry. We're seeing a lot lower levels of achievement and opportunity. Um, and no surprise, there's disproportionate compensation and recognition. Um, so, <laughs> I don't know if you guys know this term. Um, so low representation, or mannels as they've been termed recently, are you all familiar with what mannels? Okay, so that's the term we're calling panels that are all male. There's actually a website, I think it's called mannels.com, and it's just snapshots of like, you know, all guys, the usual. So we were seeing a lot of mannels, I'm going to use that now, um, at key industry events. So again, I'm not here to name or shame anybody, and I'll come to why in a moment, but I just, that's not the point of this. Um, so less than 20% of panelists were women on a good year. Last year when I counted, it was between 5 and 8%, and a couple of us were kind of like, really? So I think part of the fact that we even brought up to them helped get us to 20%, but clearly that's still not acceptable. Um, the other part of this is grant allocations are largely word to male-led companies. So Heritage Canada, for example, the top 10 recipients for their, one of their largest grants, 100% of them were men. So they're founded by men, and or run by men, and it accounted for about $5 million worth of grant funds. This is just this past year. Um, I think it's really important here to be clear. Again, this is not to say that Heritage is doing anything wrong. Half of the problem is we're not even applying for the grants. So it's not that they're looking thinking it's an old boys club by any stretch of the imagination. The women aren't always presenting themselves for these awards. Um, so since she's here, I want to, like most people, just really give a lot of credit to Nordicity. They really helped formulate our survey. Um, they helped get the information out of our brains, put it in a way that was um, really usable and, the, and formed the questions correctly, which is really the key to a great uh, study. So thank you very much, Nordicity, for that. Um, sorry, so on to the data, forgive me. Um, so we had um, a great response rate. Um, we had over 450 individuals participate with a combined total of 300, sorry, 3,668 years of experience. The average salary was just over 47,000. And this is the part that makes me a little nervous because I'm almost 40. <laughs> Nearly 70% of women working in the music industry were under the age of 40. So we know it's a young person's industry, but nevertheless, there's other factors contributing to why that also is the case. So I'll get to that in a moment. Um, and just interestingly, 70% of women in the industry had children. Um, okay, so the annual salary, so this is where we see a lot of the challenges and then we were talking about this beforehand where we saw a lot of industry crossover between our different sectors um, and many other industries are finding very similar things. Okay, okay. Um, so on average, women were paid anywhere between 20 to 25% less than their average for the industry. Um, rather sadly, the lowest salaries were the artists, just over 24,000. So that's performing artists, singers, performers, musicians. Um, of 104 named executive positions, just 23% were held by women. Um, almost half the companies surveyed had no rep women represented in their executive tier. Um, so as you go through the survey, obviously we, we drill down and speak to specific sectors within our industry. Um, but you know, these are pretty uh, disappointing results. I mean, we knew it was not equal, but you know, we have a, a challenge in front of us. So, sorry, that's my timer. Um, our next challenge really is now what do we do with this information and how do we make a change? So we're in the midst of our uh, next project, uh, which is our strategic approach. So we wanna look at, okay, now that we know these numbers, how do we actually start to formulate some solutions to help our members and help the community? So. You know, really what we've done is given ourselves a lot more questions to now go forward and answer, but you know, we felt this was a really key and crucial starting place um, to move as an organization. So if anyone wants any more information, we're just womeninmusic.ca. 
I have cards here if you want to sign up to our mailing list to see how we're moving forward and how we're progressing. Um, we have a lot of allies. We're working very closely with the New York organization. They've been around for about 30 years. Um, and uh, we're really actually excited about the opportunity to just try to make more of an impact, try to create more women entrepreneurs and really help um, everyone get to the next stage in their career and go from that middle management to that senior management, which those are the two, the two challenges that we're seeing right now. And then uh, we'll speak to questions afterwards. Thank you. Thank you so much. Next, we're going to hear from Rachel Goldstein-Couteau, um, and she's going to talk a bit about Bell Media's Bravo Fact, which mandates 50% of its funds to female-led film projects. Good morning, everyone, and um, thank you very much to the OMDC for inviting us here today to, uh, to talk about Bravo Fact. Um, we, um, this year, for with Bravo Fact, we declared it a uh, year of the female filmmaker and we dedicated 50% um, of our fund going forward to female-led projects. We um, identify, so typically with our, our Bravo Facts are um, either seven and a half minute short narrative films or 15 minute um, documentary short films. So, um, and we give away a maximum of $50,000 per project. Um, we have four juries a year, um, two factual and two narrative. Um, we give away typically around $2 million a year in funding. Um, it's a function of the license for the channel Bravo. Um, and um, I guess it was about a year ago now, I was sitting in my office and we had just done a round of funding for narrative shorts. And I got a call from a filmmaker, a female filmmaker who hadn't been funded in the last round. And um, she wasn't calling to sort of give me heck. She just wanted to know if I had realized that when we made our announcement about the, funds, the films that did get funded, did I realize that they were all male, uh, all the applicants were male. And I hadn't. Um, we typically, when we announced our, our funding in each round, we would just get, list the applicant. Um, and we had been very focused on content to that point um, and not sort of on, uh, you know, who was applying and who was getting monies. Um, so I was uh, a bit horrified, to, to be honest, because I hadn't realized. Um, and so we took a look at what we had been funding and we um, realized that, you know, because they're small projects, it's typically, especially on the narrative side, a director and a producer. So when we dug down into how we had been funding, we, what we found is that, in actual fact, over the past two years, about 53% of the projects that we'd funded did have a female creative within the projects. Um, but that um, of those funded projects, only 20% had female directors. So um, I couldn't, I just couldn't think of a good reason not to sort of mandate with our fund that it should always be a 50-50 equation. Um, we work, we fund a lot of different projects, um, but mainly we're funding emerging filmmakers and emerging talent. And um, coming from Bell Media, which is part of a giant corporation, um, you know, I, I, work, I work in programming most of the time, and Bravo Fact, I work on part of the time with my colleague, but, um, uh, you know, a typical series, say, for space or something like that, that's, you're looking at, say, an $8 million investment for a company like Bell Media um, for a 10-part series. And I think at that level, it's difficult to say, okay, well, we were investing all this money, um, it's 10-part series, half of these um, episodes need to be directed by a woman. It's a lot of money. You need to sort of have the best of the best, the best experience, the, you know. But I think at the level at which we're funding, um, emerging talent um, is where you can say, you know, we'll, you may not have the experience, but the, the investment is low enough. I mean, it's not enough. 50000 is a lot of money to a lot of us, but not to a big company like Bell. And they're obligated to give away the money. They don't have to do it. I mean, they have to do it, so they sort of, um, 
<laughs> they have to do it so they don't, um, you know, and it's, it's, I mean, it's a privilege to work on Bravo Fact. It's this little gem within this giant corporation where we can just sort of give away money to these nice little projects. Um, so I think that, um, that that was sort of the impetus that we just, I, I really at the end of the day couldn't think of a reason why we shouldn't make sure going forward that we were always funding equally. Um, so we put together a proposal and got sign off and I'm, you know, luckily I think we're sort of this, as I said, this little nugget. Nobody really may, gave us too much of a hard time. We announced, um, we did not, um, we didn't get a lot of pushback. We got some feedback that was a little, from both men and women who were concerned that it should be always merit-based and not, um, you know, based on gender. Um, and, um, and otherwise, it, it seemed pretty quiet. I, I would say I was a little bit surprised that we didn't see a huge amount of um, sort of endorsement of it from uh, professional organizations or organizations that represent women in communications, but um, that's okay. <laughs> um, we sort of soldiered on with it. Um, and, um, but what we have found since announcing, we've done two rounds of funding. We've given away about a million dollars so far this year. And we just gave away another chunk uh, this week. Um, is that we've had a huge influx in the applications that we're getting and an enorm a, a huge influx in the amount of women, um, women-led projects. So just to go back a little bit, so we determined that um, if the, either the female, uh, either director or the producer were female, that's what qualified as a, as a female-led project. Um, so, you know, and what's been so great about the influx in the, in the applications from women is that we figure, at least anecdotally, that um, women, you know, males are teaming with women so that they have a better shot at the money. So um, we haven't, um, <laughs> but that's great for everybody, right? Like, that's, that's great, wonderful. Um, so, but we haven't changed um, our process is that because we have such a, a wealth of great applications, we are merit-based because we have all these great projects to choose from and they just happen to be the majority from women. So we've funded more female-led projects now in this past year than male, but not because we were trying to, but because they were just the best ones. So, um, for me, I think it's, it's been overwhelmingly positive. And um, anyway, thank you very much for taking, for having me here to speak about it. Thanks, Rachel. And our final presenter is Emma Westacott, who will discuss OCAD's FEM-led research project, which champions women to become leaders in the digital media sector. Hi. Um, this is a simple one-button piece of interactive technology. Let's see if I can make it work properly. Um, so my name's Emma Westacott. My subject specialism is the game industry. And as you will hear from, or as you remember from my bio, I've worked in the industry for quite a long time. And one of the things that I've noticed within my particular sector is how it's become becoming increasingly oppressive. Um, I used to spend a long time saying, no, games don't cause violence. And now I don't know if I can answer the same sort of way as I used to. But let's talk about this particular project. Um, thanks to OMDC's support, we've been very lucky at OCAD to have the opportunity to work together. So it's a, a cross-institutional collaboration between myself and a number of faculty. And we're also, what that gives us is an opportunity to engage different types of methods or different types of approaches. So we're engaging in applied research, which means that we use a range of different types of approaches with invited guests and community members in order to come up with particular solutions. And the, the issue that we're interested in exploring is why are things getting worse? So one of the things that's interesting about women in ICT is the figures have dropped significantly since the 80s. And um, we're looking at exploring how we can push back against the downward, against the downward trend of women in technology and try and enable um, the opposite type of movement and direction. 
So our goals very broadly, and I'm rushing through things because I, I want to get to the conversation and, and sort of dialogue, and I've got quite a lot of slides to sort of get through, is our goals are to bring together a range of different types of uh, expertise and to build a network that lets us um, explore different types of applied opportunities to build a plan of action, really, to uh, think about how we might... Um, yeah, how we might instrumentalise responses to a, a worsening situation. We have a large team and a range of uh, a, a lot of different partners, and we're very excited about working with the mission business to body storm and come up with sort of approaches to imagine possible futures and better futures for, than the situation we're in. So some of the ways which we've been going around our work is sort of like pulling together... Um, from a range of different sort of research sources, from business research, business reports um, to academic sources, uh, and, and really spending a lot of time gathering a range of historical, current, and future data in one place, so that we can start to move forward um, to synthesise our work. And as I said, this project is probably about a, a third of the way through, so I'm sort of showing work in in progress rather than um, any sort of final piece of work. So by looking at the present, we've uh, and are carrying out and just finished a literature review of a range of, as I say, business reports. One of the things that we've done is realise that it's important to look back. Um, technology is in, an incredibly myopic field. Um, it tends to think of itself as a new area and, and, and a new um, opportunity. But one of the, the reasons that I'm privileged to be invited here today is actually to have the opportunity to learn from colleagues working with the same issue in a range of different industries and for us to be able to learn from each other's experiences. So we've looked back and we're building a timeline which will... Um, which I'll, I'll talk about very quickly as we move forward. And we're also engaging a sort of a rich frame of sort of theoretical work as we sort of move forward as well. We started our expert interviews. And one of the things that we found quite early on is the type of intervention we need goes beyond particular sectors and it goes beyond particular age groups. We need to get to girls at seven or eight. We need to get to girls at sort of 17 or 18. We need to support women who are coming back to work after having their families. And we need to think about that whole career path. So our our, our work needs to transcend sectors and it needs to, needs to sort of transcend um, generations. And I've just seen the three-minute clock. So we, we've split our, our focus on life stage and we've um, identified some biases which act as barriers in terms of women's progress in ICT. So whether it's um, the issue of returning to work, the maternal wall, as we call it, or the need to prove skill um, again and again and again, and women quite often have to sort of justify their expertise throughout their career on a, on, on a regular basis. So we're looking at identifying bias. We're in and how stereotypes become constructed and, and sort of synthesising those into um, implications to allow us to generate uh, action. And some of the, the, the findings we found is, although there's a rhetoric for diversity as a way to trigger innovation, actually in reality there's fewer women at le in leadership roles in ICT and in Silicon Valley than they have a, ever have been. So again, the general trend we're seeing across sectors is things are getting worse. It's not getting better, it's getting worse. Um, and when we sort of typify, or when I was looking at sort of typifying the types of movement I've borne witness to in my long experience with, with technology, I, I think this particular model is that feminism isn't done. You know, our work is, our, our battle's not going to be engaged, won, and then done with. Each generation needs to re-engage with the same issues in order to hold the doors open for the generations that come afterwards. It's a repetitive and recurrent issue. So as soon as we celebrate our steps forward... We can't rest on that. We have to keep moving forward in order to sort of maintain choice and options for generations of women to come. So I think this sort of model of action and reaction very much typifies um, some of the results we're finding from our study as we move forward. So how, what are we doing about it? Well, we're engaging feminist theory to look at... I mean, this isn't a new problem. It's a problem that many great minds have been engaged with for a significant amount of time. So what can we learn from those points of view and perspective as we move forward? So women often get erased from history. So looking at pushing back against that erasure in order to draw timelines of when things have changed, what progress women have made in the past, in order to be able to synthesise that into our effort and our generation sort of activity is something the project sees as being really important. Um, at the same time, we've been looking at the current situation. So in technology, for example, um, we're increasingly seeing things like the growth of the programmer. So programmers are becoming 
fashionable or you know becoming trendy the geek is now cool they weren't 20 years ago and so what does that mean to working conditions in IT uh, internationally so we've been drawing trends uh, and identifying some of the stuff that we can sort of see uh, op operationally happening within ICT fields at the moment um, and one of the ways that we're sort of going to move forward is we're going to continue with our expert interviews and then bring those experts into um, an applied sort of body storming context where we imagine possible solutions. Uh, and that type of um, enacted physical engagement lets us to go deep into, um, into what possible solutions might be. The other thing that we're very interested in is applying our theoretical knowledge through use of gameplay. So, for example, uh, using theory cards to take into sort of situations um, that might let us um, come up with synthesised solutions. And just to summarise, it's getting worse. And these are my colleague, Suzanne Steinsberg, who's leading the project. Um, and so it's an ongoing effort. Things, we may have come a long way, but things are worse now than they have been in the past. And so the clarion call for, which I think the MDC is really smart in terms of sort of like supporting and synthesising is how do we move forward and how do we continue the work that has gone on before us? Thank you. Uh, if anybody wants to participate in the study, please contact my colleague Suzanne Stein. Um, we're really interested in seeking experts to come in and be part of our process moving forward. Thank you. Thank you so much. So I might just ask a question or two from the panelists and then open it up to everyone here. And the one thing that I did hear this morning, I think from everybody, was... Um, if women aren't applying for the grants or if they're not um, entering the field, if they're not, um, you know, accepting um, that sort of education, how do we address and encourage that? Do you guys have any suggestions about how to get women applying for those grants? Or I, I think, for me, um, it's one of the things I was pointing to in my presentation. It's, it's in, we need to think about a life course, and we need to think about how we can engage with girls and women across that life course at key different points. So, you know, again, it's a classic response, oh, well, we don't have women applying. And yet we see the success of projects like yours by creating a sort of gender-specific call. All of a sudden, you can really benefit a wide spectrum of applications and encourage women and different minorities to come in and engage. So I think that, you know, gender-specific initiatives are important to encourage. There are times and spaces where we can let our girls and women fill their capacity, skill and talent. And so I think that we have to collaborate to create a sort of holistic solution that intervenes over an individual's life course. Um, again, we're still in early stages, but I think what we're noticing and where we, we think we're going to go next is... Um, being able to identify sort of the, the two largest challenges, again, is uh, women getting into senior roles and, and entrepreneurial roles. So one of the things we want to do moving forward is being able to create content and information sharing where we're able to support these uh, changes in the right direction. So whether it's having, you know, seminars about funding, a lot of my colleagues and peers don't really even understand what's available and really being able to bring that knowledge to our members. Um, and it might even be worth encouraging uh, something like Australia does. Australia, uh, their, their funding actually requires that um, anywhere between the 40 to 60% margin, it's split by gender. And that's you know, so, so similar to what you're doing. Um, but at this, at this point, you know, I think information is key, arming people with what is out there. Um, and, and as we spoke about, just even visually being able to see each other. So being more on panels, trying to advocate more for um, having more of a presence in coming to the table. I, I mean, I think we we have had um, a lot of success with just sort of saying like this this fund is there for you, and that is encouraged a lot more. Um, we're still seeing a deficit in the women directors, so we're teaming with different organizations now and trying and specifically trying to address that and trying to figure. Out, I think it's like that's an industry wide problem. Um, and you know, I'm not. Sh I, I'm not certainly not an expert in why women don't seem to gravitate towards that. Um, I certainly love telling people what to do. Um, <laughs> but um, so I think that's our next. That would be our next goal is trying is to work with um, different organizations and try and figure out how we can encourage specifically in that because it's it's an important role. 
And is that something that you have in music as well in terms of certain um, sectors of the music industry where women um, aren't as well represented perhaps? Yeah, again, we were speaking to this. Uh, women tend to come into a lot of the marketing and PR roles or the administrative and support roles. But where we see uh, probably the biggest discrepancies in the creative roles. So female A&R representatives, they're few and far between. Um, <clears throat> and that, that's a challenge because if you're not A&Ring, you know, if it's all men, but the people who are purchasing it are half women, then you're not really having the people that represent you going to find the music that sort of speaks to you, so, you know? So I think it's really important in the creative roles. And, you know, as I mentioned, with artists also being the least paid in our entire sector. Um, recording engineers is another one. So anything that really is intrinsically related to creative is where we see the absolute lowest representation. I'm wondering if any of you um, within the roles of women, uh, also diversity is, is another issue that's certainly a big, huge issue in publishing. And I'm curious if any of you have seen any initiatives that have been successful in, in, in terms of encouraging um, diversity within um, women in, those, in your industries. I think the challenge there is the success. <laughs> there are a number of initiatives that I see starting up in my sector that are looking at um, in including a sort of wider range of different sort of backgrounds and perspectives, but it's a bit early to say how successful it is. And in, in my particular subject area of games, the people who do become visible become target and victim to sort of rather virulent online abuse, which I don't necessarily, I have to name check, but don't want to give too much time and attention to. And I, we were talking about this before, is you know, how do we deal with this problem of online violence? Do we censor it and put real name policy in place? The trouble about that is it silences many voices that are enabled through anonymous communication and conversation. So, so thinking about things that we can do to protect those who choose to be visible is a big issue in my industry at the moment. And I think that that I feel very conflicted about that as much as I want to celebrate the female successes and I know that we need to make um, those successes visible to sort of encourage new generations to consider creative engagement um, we have to figure out ways of protecting those who are sort of subject to these types of sort of actions so it's it's sort of complicated issue I think. I think we're going to turn this over to the audience. If you guys have any questions, I believe there are microphones. There's one over there. Hi. Um, I just want to pick up on the uh, diversity uh, issue that you just raised. I'm uh, with the Writers Guild, I'm a policy analyst, and I also run the Bell Media Diverse Screenwriters Program. So Bell does pump in a lot of money into the creative side. Um, I'm excited about our program. We have had a, a number of grads come through, and I just wanted to ask, um, in targeting women, how are, do you feel that you also have to target women from minority communities? Um, special sort of things like partnering with organizations that are representing women from minority communities or diversity uh, communities. Do you feel you have to make a special effort um, because women in those uh, communities are, have to be targeted in a different way? Well, uh, to answer your question, I, I, I think that um, feminism has taught us that any type of factioning is problematic. So you have a, like, feminism in a contemporary society is very fragmented with different communities arguing about what a woman is, for example, or what's a, more, what's a valid experience, which in some ways is a preposterous sort of like discussion. I think the, the benefit of feminism is it allows us to sort of like open up and um, listen to a range of different types of voices and to explore the nature of difference and our privilege and our, our sort of situation. So I occupy a really privileged position, you know, I, I get paid to do something that I love and I have an opportunity to direct budgets that I have access to, to communities that I want to work with. So I find that in my work that it is important for me to consider other marginalised peoples in a range of different types of ways. And the, the cue I always take um, from feminists I've worked with is, in some ways, we need to focus on um, the most at-risk people in our community. And, and in order to be able to benefit everybody as we move forward. So I, I don't think that... Um, I don't think we can get away from the complicated issue of, of how we um, 
put measures in place to support as many different groups as we possibly can. So you have to acknowledge everybody's difference at the same time as trying to sort of open up possibilities from as many different communities as, as you can. I don't know if that's answered your question, but it is an issue with my work very much. I can speak to that slightly in that, um, again, we're a very new organization, but we haven't found there's many other organizations dealing with sort of groups that are looking to have more of a voice. So we've consciously sought out um, other voices to include um, the, in the, into the conversation. So um, there's a number of women. There's Honey Jam that is specifically for a particular community. We are engaging them and making sure, again, that we have a conversation with everyone, to your point. It, it, you know, it's a bigger conversation with everybody at the table. Um, and we've specifically gone out of our way to try to encourage diversity within our organization and speak to how we can affect that change um, with the mechanisms that we're looking to affect as well. Um, I had a question and it relates to um, academia versus industry and in academia you're, I mean, you have the pleasure to explore uh, more sophisticated ideas of what feminism means and um, it's a long and sophisticated history and then we get to the industry side and we're talking about just having women's faces at the table and um, issues of representation which seem caught up in, you know, are more connected to history 100 years ago, really. Do any of you get to have more sophisticated discussions about gender uh, in the workplace? Or does it always stay in the university setting? Um. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, there isn't like a, you know, a support group or anything like that at, at Bell um, that I'm aware of. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, do I sit with colleagues sometimes and say, geez, you know, but, um, and, and I think through that you're, su you're supporting each other and your struggles with um, where you're perceiving um, issue with gender in the workplace. But nothing, I mean, other than events like this, no, not for me. I mean, I guess I have the privilege you describe. Um, I come from industry and I work in the academy now and I'd say a feminist project is not functional if it doesn't successfully engage industry. So um, one of the things we try very hard to do at OCAD is work with our partners and to engage our research in particular community groups. So for example, I work a lot with a group called Dames Making Games and Ladies Learning Code and we volunteer time and we send our students out into those forums because as I said, just to sort of repeat the point, a feminist project is an activist project and if we're not affecting change, then we're not doing our job. So, so for as much as I've reveled and rolled around in the sort of theoretical context, it, that, that's not important if we're not seeing or affecting change for sort of generations of people. So I think it has to be applied and I think it's our job to figure out ways that we can communicate to apply and, and, and take, you know, and make steps forward. I know at my workplace we do have conversations and we look at every issue because we can't really report on things like, you know, the numbers in other book media organizations without looking at ourselves. And our numbers are very good in terms of the, the gender divide, but where I find that the challenges are, and we have long conversations about this is, you know, we do kids, we review kids books and adult books. And why or do we have mostly women reviewing children's books versus, or why is this woman Inter, re, like doing a review on this kind of book, why can't she review this kind of book? So we try and have those conversations all the time and improve, but yeah, it's, it's, it's challenging. Hi, Sia. Hello, hello. Hi, I'm Sia. First off, thank you very much for having the courage. You know, it's that extra little bit that you have to do. Doing your job and getting up in the morning and being a mom and, and just life is all of the above. It really is. And uh, for you, Rachel, 
God love you. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> you're, you're swimming in a shark pit, my love. <laughs> you know, I, I'm very, I say this with all the modesty in the world, but I'm the only person, I think, in Canada, I think, who was walked out of a network and then walked back in. And part of that was because I came to your network. And I was part of an inner, I've been part of a few inner circles, and I'm honored to keep information that I have to myself at all times. But I have seen things for, happen to us, and it takes guts to stand up. So thank you just for showing up and for trying. Second we stop trying, we're done. situation in, in gaming, as we know, with Gamergate and uh, issues with the type of games and who's creating them is pretty serious. Do you, th- do you find there's, uh, in your, through your research, that there's a role that government uh, and regulatory bodies c- could play in improving the situation? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I, th- I think that there's also a role that large corporations can take in holding particular positions and, and accepting or not certain types of sort of behaviours. So one of the, the problems that's happening is, is the people who are sort of subject to the violence are taking that fight on themselves and they're not getting corporate support and they're not necessarily getting governmental support. And so I do think there is a role... Um, it's not something that we should necessarily sort of like rush to in terms of censorship. And as I, the point that I made before about um, about access to um, individual sort of like names, but I think that the work done with private fact with creating sort of like female-only funds is a really important way of supporting different types of makers. I think that I am lucky enough to work with Dames Making Games, which is a feminist sort of like community group that provides free workshops to women who want to make games. And I think those types of initiatives really need support and are really important. I also work with academics who, who use girl-only groups in schools to encourage girls to get more creatively involved. So I, I, I do think that um, things like quotas, things like female-only sort of support networks, as much as we might balk at, at some of the criticism that that might call, I think that is really important and a function of our public sectors to, to help create as well. So whether you're at a university or at a government or an institution, I do think we all need to take a more active role in um, the future of our field. So it looks like we have time for one more question. Hi, um, my name is Darlene. I work in law and part of our business model is basically helping overworked employees within companies and many of them happen to be women who have a huge workload. And um, Lynn and I, we were together, we were at a, pan- a manal yesterday. <laughs> I love that, it's fantastic. Um, we were at a manal, and then following the manal was a, a panel with women talking about work-life balance. And I just, from our experience, we've seen, I mean, we've got a long history in the music business, we represent um, people in other creative industries, and then we also deal with tech companies. And what we see across the board is that women play a different role in companies. There's a little bit of nurturing. There's a lot of care about, you know, they're the people who are still there late at night, making sure the little stuff doesn't fall down. And I don't know that that's reflected in the conversation. And I I love what you are all doing, just speaking about it. And if you can take back to the world somewhere this idea that I think it's not just that women don't know how to work after taking the kids to daycare. Like, I think this conversation's kind of done. We know how to do that. It's how do we work differently? And like, how do organizations start to value that? Because I think I was a senior executive at a record label and we, you know, we were actually probably 50% female at the senior executive at one point. Um, But we were, we worked differently. We just did different stuff. We weren't as effective, I found, at saying no to work because it wasn't our job. You know, I found that women at my company would say, oh, you're asking me to do more work? It must be because you think I'm not busy. Okay, I'll do it. You know, I think that's really different. So I'd love to know ideas on how to change that work-life balance conversation. It's life, it's women, this is who we are, this is how we work, how do we value it? 
We were talking about this earlier, weren't we? Just in terms of, like, not only do you have to be excellent at work, you have to be a wonderful mother, you have, you know, so all of these things that we do and, and, and engage with on a day-to-day -day basis, we put ourselves un, under pressure. I, I often, like, I've never been on one. I suffer from, I think we all suffer from the same problem, but I, I often feel that we should go on, like, one of those no workshops, you know, where they teach us to say no. And I've heard they're really brutal and, like, they reduce you to tears really quickly because you don't want to say no to things. And it's like I have a problem, like, like, I have a problem with the no word because every time I've said yes, it's taken me on these great adventures. And, like, I wouldn't swap any of those adventures, but I wish I was better at saying no. And, like, I don't know when it is in my life I'm going to feel comfortable about saying you know, no to work or no to opportunities or no to... And I, I'd suggest every woman in this room has a problem saying no to stuff. And I don't know how we can get better at that, but I think all of us need to maybe promise each other we're going to get better at saying no to things. Because um, I think it's, it's super important and you raise a really important issue. It's like, why do we rush to do everything? Well, there's, there's that old saying, if you want something done, give it to a busy mother. Have you ever heard of that? Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but as far as the differences, I mean, we're talking sort of just from a human standpoint, it's important that we have balance. But there's also some really compelling um, reasons to do this. And it's not just for the right, you know, for the humanity of it. The European community has actually been really great in doing some studies about uh, women in senior positions and women on boards and what that means to companies. And I have a little chat here that I brought, hoping that I'd be able to mention this. Sorry. Um, that the top 20% of financial performers on the um, publicly traded indexes have 37% of women leaders and the bottom 20 of 19. So what they're finding, there's actually a direct correlation economically with companies who have women in senior roles and on boards. And in fact, many people didn't know this, but as of Jan 1, um, the Ontario Securities and Exchange Commission, I think I said that correctly, um, is requiring that any publicly traded company in Ontario now disclose the women on their boards and the women in senior roles. So they're, they're, the note that it's important and that people are beginning to realize, again, not just for the humanity, which is the obvious reason why we're here, but economically, it's key to have more women in these roles because, quite frankly, what they find is the honesty of women <laughs> is what's preventing a lot of these companies, especially in light of what just happened in banking, the more banks have women in the senior roles, the better the banks are doing because they're not doing these packaged deals of, you know, not legitimate product. Um, so, and I think that applies to all industries. Um, it's important to have women in these roles. It's better. It's healthier for the companies and it's healthier for the industries. I think that's a pretty good place to uh, <laughs> to conclude this morning's talk. Um, I'd like to thank OMDC for inviting us all here today and for addressing this vital topic. And also to our three fantastic panelists, Rachel Goldstein-Couteau, Samantha Slatterly, and um, Emma Westacott. Thank you. Well, I got that right to the end, <laughs> right to the end, the last word. But thank you very much. Thank you.